This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey, Happy New Year. It's been a couple of weeks since we've chatted. Uh, thanks to Victor Vigiani for sitting in last week while I was away in L.A. filming episodes for the TV show. And uh, Season 3 will be coming your way sometime in the fall of 2013. And there'll be an official announcement coming soon. And while I was away, obviously, a lot went down. And uh, I've received hundreds of emails from people asking me, why haven't I talked about the horrible shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Connecticut? And quite honestly, I've put off talking about it for a couple of reasons. Number one, uh, as you know, I have twin six-year-old boys. And the 20 children, uh, babies really, were all five or six years old. And for me, for many of you, This just hit too close to home. I couldn't have possibly come on the radio and talked about what happened. Uh, Just too horrible to imagine, and and it still is, really. But secondly, perhaps more importantly, I felt it was essential to allow some time to pass uh, before discussing this so we could all properly grieve uh, for the young children and the teachers and all the families and friends of the victims Uh, But tonight, it is time to talk about it. It's time to examine this horrific crime and to examine it in detail uh, and talk about the inconsistencies in the official story because, unfortunately, as you know, we can no longer look to the mainstream news-gathering organizations for the answers because investigative journalism is dead. Uh, My guest tonight sees a much darker story to this shooting, He says it goes way beyond the wanton killing of innocent children. It's the story of what he calls dark side operations, which target young, unstable males, Adam Lanza, with mood-altering drugs and mind control techniques, and then directing them to kill increasingly younger victims until the Congress of the United States can be driven to legislate away the uniquely American right to self-defense with guns. Joel Skousen is a political scientist by training, specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory. He's also a designer of high-security residences and retreats. 
and he is the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief. Hey, Joel, how are you? I'm just fine, Richard. It's good to be with you in this holiday season. Uh, terrific uh, to have you with us again. And uh, obviously, um, it's unfortunate, the circumstances that uh, the, one of the things that we're going to talk about, obviously, horrific, horrific uh, shooting spree uh, in uh, Newton, Connecticut at Sandy Hook Elementary School. And I, as I was saying off the top of the program, I really hesitated. Uh, I, I delayed talking about this. First of all, uh, as a father, I know you're a father, just the absolute shock and horror prevented me from wanting to talk about it on a personal note. Uh, but then I just felt, you know, it, it, we really needed to, to, to allow for a proper grieving time before we started to pick this story apart and analyze it. And that's why we have you here uh, tonight. When, when you first uh, heard about uh, this shooting, what immediately leapt to mind? Well, the thing that always strikes me about mass murders without a motive is that this matches nothing that I know about, even in mental illness, even in criminal psychology. No one, and I mean virtually no one, goes in and shoots up a bunch of kindergarten. Not the hardened, most hardened murder, not insane people. It just doesn't happen. And so when it does happen, we have to look deeper at the uh, concepts of whether or not uh, this person is, uh, is being controlled. As you that's point- what I concept. Yes. Right. As you, as you point out in a World Affairs Brief, uh, few of the facts in the tragedy were reported consistently. There was, um, you know, a lot of conflicting evidence or in, uh, a lot of conflicting information that was coming out, uh, which is understandable given, again, the the uh, the horrific nature of this story. And, and uh, there were some, you know, things that were reported initially incorrectly. Uh, walk me through some of the, the initial reports that um, sort of conflicted with with the stories that came out later that you found troubling? Well, you know, one of the things that I have noticed as I've watched this pattern, and what I described in my World of First Brief is a pattern of these mass killings that fits into a mold that isn't criminal and it isn't mental illness. Um, and But one of the things I found is that initial reports from media reporters, because, you know, even though there's a lot of control of the mainstream media, it doesn't mean that every individual reporter is controlled. It gets controlled at the editing stage and at the where a story is spiked or squashed or or something changes. And that's what I've noticed. Initially, reporters often get it right. And then the story starts to change to fit an agenda or to fit a desired result. And that's what I'm seeing here. This is what happened to Oklahoma City. Bombing, you know, uh, film cameras came in from the local TV station, uh, took a close-up of a bomb that was unexploded outside the building, and several other things that happened that were anomalies from the mainstream story, and all of a sudden they got word from the FBI, you're never to show that again. So you see, that's... What I'm looking at is when the initial reports are correct and the last uh, or the later reports that are disinformation. So there was a single perpetrator claim, you know, except for a few of reports at the beginning, this Newtown incident that always focused on a lone gunman, same thing with a lot of other conspiracies like the JFK assassination. But there ended up being two or three other persons involved in this who were taken into custody and we've never heard anything about them since. Two other vehicles besides the Lanza car that were driven to the school. Police helicopter, of course, showed the pursuit and capture of someone fleeing the scene with a rifle into the woods who comes out in handcuffs saying, I didn't do it. 
didn't do what we might ask, you know, without knowing what was going on. Um, there was um, a, a police uh, recording, audio recording that I heard uh, about them apprehending another person who was in a vehicle in the school. They had him on the ground and handcuffed. Uh, one of the children being interviewed as he comes out of the school saying he saw the police with a guy handcuffed on the floor inside the school. Now, there'd be no reason to handcuff the person who committed suicide if this was Adam Lanza, the, uh, the, the killer. But uh, if there was someone else in that school, um, and, and, and in a pattern that I described in my World Affairs Brief, oftentimes you have, in a mind control situation, a handler who's assigned to be there, one or two people, to make sure that if the program into suicide, the person doesn't go through, then they get shot. That's what happened in the Gunblame Scotland uh, killing, which was the one that brought gun control to, to Britain. A guy who was a, a, a pedophile uh, with a known history goes in and shoots up and kills 16 children and then suicides himself. But the problem is the two guns beside him were both 9 millimeters, and he, the autopsy said he was killed with a, uh, a 38 special bullet, and there was no 38 special weapon there. For him to fire. Joel Skousen is with us, the editor-publisher of World Affairs Brief. Uh, Joel, the the other um, puzzling aspect of this story, the conflicting reports on the weapons that were used. That's correct. The initial reports by police, notice these are not just reporters assuming or getting around it. These are official reports by the police to reporters. Said the shooter was found dead with two 9mm semi-automatic pistols, even named the brands, a Glock and a 6-hour, which adds credibility to the report, and that the floor was littered with 9mm shell casings. And then the police said that besides two guns, they found an AR-15 Bushmaster assault rifle in his car that was registered as mother. We now know that she did buy those weapons, even though it's very difficult to get them in Connecticut. She was a prepper. She was concerned about, uh, you know, uh, economic and social unrest. But the problem is, and this doesn't fit, you know, what the media wanted to do. The purpose of prom- promulgating a massacre like this in order to get gun control is that you have to have the, the gun that does the deed to be a weapon that they want to ban. There's no chance of getting a complete ban on handguns in the United States, so strong is the feeling about the Second Amendment. But they've done it before on assault weapons, and they're going to do it again on assault weapons. And so this, I believe, the story had to be changed so that the assault weapon now becomes the the weapon of choice. Now this is, in fact, it even gets more muddled when the... um, a police official told the uh, AP that there were also a Henry repeating rifle found, an Enfield rifle, and a shotgun. Now, Adam Lanza had to get into this building by breaking a window besides the front locked door in order to get access to that door. You can't do that with an arm full of long rifle weapons like this. So something's really wrong here. Another thing that's very important to understand is that the, this school had a new security system with cameras throughout the hallways, Nobody is telling the public about what those cameras show. And that's problematic because whenever they refuse to show the videos, it usually means there's a major difference between the official story and what really went down. So uh, these individuals, uh, two or three other individuals that were caught on a a helicopter camera uh, running through the woods, and one of them, as you say, was apprehended, and uh, handcuffed and, and was heard to say, I didn't do it, I didn't do it. 
I mean, where is the follow-up on these stories? Who were these individuals? Has anybody able to, been able to identify them? Has anyone asked a follow-up question to the, the, the police or the FBI? No, and that's the strange thing. It's when something gets buried, the word goes out to the news media, don't ask about those people, and the police don't volunteer any, any results, and so you just have nothing. Uh, it, they disappear. I mean, these were actual, there was only one person that fled in the woods. He was captured. If, uh, and uh, taken into custody. There was a person on the ground that was taken into custody, and this one person in handcuffs inside the building. Then. So that's three separate people who were taken into custody besides the person who apparently committed suicide, Otto Lanza. This is what reeks of conspiracy when suddenly it just goes into a black hole and there's no information. Nobody explains, well, we, this was so-and-so, we released him without cause. Um, because we found out he wasn't nothing. There's just nothing, and that's what really uh, makes me suspicious of this story. And and of course, uh, we're all familiar with the um, the threats. There's no other way to describe them by the FBI and the and the police in Newton. Uh, anyone who was caught either online, in the internet, or elsewhere uh, reporting on any of these rumors or, or reporting on what they called false information would be arrested. I mean, that's 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 sending a, a considerable chill through a, a number of news media uh, organizations. I'm guessing it is. I'm also concerned about the you know uh, the whole story about using a, a 223 assault rifle. This is a very high-powered, high-velocity round that will literally go right through children. And the coroner talks about, you know, um, you know, asserting that all these children were shot with rifle shots. But, I mean, um, there would be no bullets left, uh, very rarely, because they will penetrate a small body like that. I, I hate to talk, you know, in graphic terms, but it's much more likely that he used the 9 millimeter weapons rather than an assault weapon for for this type of shooting. He had been to the range before with his mother. He knew how to shoot. But what's interesting that defies the mental health issue here, which people claiming, well, he's crazy. The point is, everything that he talked about with a roommate from which he stole the weapon showed a very sane person. This isn't somebody who flipped out. He was planning on making an escape to Hawaii, uh, which is also very interesting. This speaks about mind control, because in mind control, where you're under hypnosis and when you're under mood-altering drugs, uh, which is a, a real problem here, um, you are programmed to commit suicide, but you don't know it beforehand. Now, had he been willing to commit, planning on committing suicide, first of all, he wouldn't have worn a mask, and secondly, he wouldn't have made plans to to go to Hawaii. He wouldn't have worn body armor. That's correct. In other words, if you're committing suicide, you know, hey, no one's around. I'm just going to, you know, end it. But you see, programming indicates that you are told at the end of a certain period, when your your magazine is out of bullets and stuff, then you uh, you another weapon and turn it on yourself there's a specific programming and you don't remember that beforehand it just happens when you get into the act and that's what this appears and if the suicide programming doesn't work that's why you have the other shooters there to make sure you don't survive and can be questioned and perhaps even deprogrammed listen uh, joel we'll take a time out we'll come back and continue to talk about this horrific uh, school shooting spree in uh, Newton, Connecticut, and Joel Skousen is with us, editor-publisher of World Affairs Brief. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show, back with more in a moment. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
We're back with Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs a Brief. And uh, Joel, quickly, how can people uh, subscribe to your all-important uh, news service? Well, my World Affairs Brief is showcased on my website, worldaffairsbrief.com, where you can see a synopsis of the latest brief. And you can also get a free sample copy because there is a subscription fee for my, my uh, weekly email brief. You can get a free sample copy to see if you'd like to subscribe by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. All right. Let's uh, continue to talk about the uh, Sandy Hook uh, shooting. And uh, again, if you're wondering, you know, here we are several weeks later, uh, why now? Uh, well, of course, something like this we should be talking about uh, all the time. But we've deliberately here on The Conspiracy Show uh, allowed a few weeks to go by uh, just so that we could, first of all, grieve, which is very, very important. And also, uh, just because there's been so much confusion uh, around this story, we wanted uh, people like Joel Skousen to have time to sort of piece this thing together so that we could uh, come at this uh, with sort of all of the, uh, you know, the important questions uh, and, and the missing evidence and the conflicting uh, claims about the weapons that were used and how many how many people were involved. All of these questions are swirling around and not too many people talking about it, but Joel Skousen uh, is. Um, let's talk about um, the missing evidence. You talked about the, the school security cameras, and this sounds familiar. We're all familiar, of course, with, uh, you know, the uh, the video evidence uh, from uh, the Oklahoma uh, City bombing and, and 9-11. All of these, I mean, we are living in the most surveilled uh, time in the history of, of the world, and yet none of these, uh, none of this videotape is forthcoming. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, the, the the school uh, security uh, cameras, the school security cameras, Joel? Well, it was a new security system that was just recently installed, state-of-the-art, cameras on every hallway, every major classroom. Clearly, they've got video of what happened here. Cameras on the front doors. They know how he got in. They know what he did and traced a step every step of the way. So they're going to know, and the only reason that you're not presenting that video evidence is, and, and there's no reason to now because, you see, the shooter's dead, so there's going to be no trial. There's going to be no way that anyone's going to be able to subpoena that evidence, but it's there and it's being kept covered up. And, uh, you know, the establishment is well aware of the conspiracy theories surrounding this, and it would be very easy for them to drop, you know, video evidence to prove that, you know, what finally went down, but nothing. That's what's interesting. Is there's a complete vacuum of information now that this is over. The only thing we're hearing is the drumbeat for gun control. We're not hearing anything about the resolution of the evidence. Let's talk about Adam Lanza. What, what, what do we know about Adam Lanza? What have you heard, perhaps, that hasn't been reported about the, uh, the alleged gunman? Well, the important thing is to realize that this fits a, a pattern of what I think the dark side of government goes looking for when they want to have criminals to commit, uh, or not criminals, but unstable individuals to commit. They always have some kind of antisocial behavior. Uh, James Holmes, the Batman shooter, had his orange hair and various tattoos. This guy had various uh, tattoos and, and, and piercings uh, throughout. Uh, they talked about him being a loner. But, you know, loners aren't necessarily, um, you know, people who don't hungry for pure uh, expressions and acceptance. They are a actually some of the worst that that look for these types of things. 
And we do know, for example, that on a previous Facebook page that he said that he was a devil worshiper. When he put down his politics, he said that he was an anarchist slash communist. So at least he wasn't someone on the right wing that they can poke this on. But he clearly had, um, you know, a lot of uh, disparate and confusing points of view. These are typical of what the government looks for when they're looking for a patsy. Now, how do they find these? Well, it's interesting that James Holmes, when he first went into custody, because remember, he's one of those that didn't end up committing suicide, which which breaks the pattern. Right. And and he said to a roommate that he had been programmed to do this shooting by his psychiatrist. And that's what I find in other patterns is that the government hires psychiatrists into the dark side. The MK Ultra program of mind control worked with psychiatrists. The torture program hired psychiatrists who are unprincipled, who have no qualms about taking money from the government to develop enhanced torture and other systems. And in this case, I believe it's the psychiatrist who put these guys on mood-altering drugs. If you trace it back to them, they're the ones who are being hired to do the programming, get them in, involved in uh, 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 being um, uh, put under uh, hypnosis, which is the primary way in combination with mood-altering drugs that you get a person to be programmed uh, to do this. Uh, so all of these major things were present, uh, disturbing patterns, antisocial behavior, going to a psychiatrist, getting on psychotropic drugs, one or more handlers in the area, killing innocent people, people without any motive whatsoever. And that's the real $95 question is nobody in history ever does this unless they're programmed or hypnotized to do so. And and do we know, uh, has there been any reports on, on um, the presence of psychotropic drugs in Adam Lanza's system? No, they're not. Uh, we just have the story from friends that they knew that he was on these drugs. Does anyone know? I mean, and the mother is dead. You right. know, the mother would yes, conveniently. Very convenient. Now we frankly don't know. Everybody says that Adam Lanza killed his mother. We don't know that. That's you know, true. She may have may have been killed with one of the weapons that he took. There were, and that's what's interesting about all these other weapons, which were registered. He had multiple weapons, but only three of them showed up with Adam Lanza. So whoever was working his handlers could have used one of those weapons to kill him. We don't. We have not even been told which weapon it came from and what the caliber of the bullet is. So the police just aren't, uh, you know, making any efforts to finish this investigation as they would uh, under normal circumstances. The, the evidence has all just disappeared into a black hole inside the police. I'm sure you've heard these re- this report, and uh, this is interesting. I'm not sure what to make of it, but both... Uh, the whole, uh, both Holmes' father and Adam Lanza's father were both witnesses in the uh, the Libor scandal. What what can you tell us about that? Uh, that it's false. Ah. The, the only thing true about the report was their occupation, and uh, which was showcased on the LinkEd uh, website, which they were members of. Uh, one, uh, the Holmes, Robert Holmes, worked for the FICO. Um, um, which was a credit rating system, and uh, the other worked as a financial uh, uh, advisor for GE Capital. And uh, frankly, there is absolutely no evidence, none whatsoever, that they had any knowledge of the Libor scandal. Number two, they are not on any list from the Senate of anyone who was going to testify, so that part is just bogus. Someone is out there stirring the part and trying to make and create false conspiracy theories 
to discredit real conspiracy theories. Joel Skousen is with us, the editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief here on The Conspiracy Show as we continue to discuss the horrific uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting earlier this month. Uh, so, Joel, let's, let's lay this out on the line. You're saying the evidence points to Adam Lanza being yet another mind-control patsy. But what's disturbing is that the obviously is the age of the victims this time. Why target such young victims? Well, there has been a pattern of, uh, of doing these attacks into gun-free zones, uh, shopping malls, schools, and movie theaters. But the schools have always been older children. This is the first time you get into or or young children, and I believe they're simply um, not only increasing the frequency of, of the attack, but they're attacking younger and younger children because of the shock effect. As you have witnessed, as you have expressed, it has shocked the nation, and for the first time, this creates a tipping point. People are resistant to, to use the air. There was no movement to get gun control after the Batman shooting. There was no movement after the shopping mall shooting in Clackamas Town Center uh, in Oregon. But suddenly you start killing innocent little sub-10-year-olds, and all of a sudden the mood changes, and that's exactly what they're pointing. And frankly, we're not over. They're going to keep doing this again and again because they're only going to get, they're only going to get assault weapon bans out of this, and it's a very interesting twist now. They're, they're going to uh, change the grandfathering of those that already have assault weapons to require that they register them in a national gun registry, first time ever in the United States that's going to be required, and fingerprint people. So this is going to be a step in the wrong direction, I believe. The only safety is the Israeli solution, and that is that you arm teachers and conce- with concealed arms so that a shooter can't come in. You know, this idea of having a guard or a policeman in schools doesn't work. You can simply ambush the guard, and then you've got a free reign to go. But if you have multiple concealed weapons among administrators and teachers in schools, there's no way to know it's a perfect deterrent. Nobody's going to risk going into a school where an unknown number of people are armed and trained, willing to engage them. So this, the, 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 the real perpetrators behind this and other uh, of these mass shootings, including the, uh, the movie theater in Colorado and Virginia Tech and on and on, this tragic list goes and continues to grow. You call it the darker forces inside government. But even still, I mean, many of us sit back and would find that, that idea that there's someone sitting there, I don't know, behind a desk conceiving of a notion of, of, of murdering innocent children, mere babies, to further a gun ban agenda. It's just too much to believe, almost, Joel, that anyone could be that evil. Well, and that's why we have to understand that this is not just individual evil, because this is bigger than any one individual. This is systematic evil. And that's why I've said these conspiracies ultimately have, because they, they run this pattern of doing things that are against human nature. I mean, even bringing nuclear war upon this world, which are, you know, a globalist agenda to do that, or even to bring World War II and all the firebombing is an agenda above and beyond any single individual. And that's why I think there is a, a spiritual dark side, a satanic link to these conspiracies that directs these decade after decade with a pattern. No single individual is capable of doing that. But I look back on this, you know, you say how difficult that is to accept. But once you understand that 
President Roosevelt not only knew that Japan was going to attack Pearl Harbor and failed to warn them, causing the death of over 3,000 of our military people, which was murder. He provoked Japan to do it. They had a six point, an eight, I'm sorry, an eight-point plan, according to the book uh, Day of Deceit by Robert Stewart, an eight-point plan that's been uncovered to provoke it, and they knew it was coming. We can prove with a multiplicity of evidence that the 9-11 was a government operation from beginning to end. Somebody pulled the trigger. That building was completely empty the weekend before. Everyone was shut out of the building while it was being loaded with explosives. That's murder. But you see, people are shocked at that concept because it's withheld from them. But in fact, there's a long history of committing mass murder by government dark side forces. And why do I call them dark side? Because we don't know who they are. That's the best-kept secret around, and they control the surveillance mechanism. In order for you to prosecute this, you'd have to get into the surveillance mechanism, because they do surveil everybody's telephone, everybody's email. We could prove these things, but they're never going to let us in, because they control that machinery. Even if you had someone like Ron Paul, elected president, who is not a conspirator, they would not let him have access to that information. All right, Joel, we'll come back and we'll continue to talk about uh, certain aspects of uh, gun control or gun uh, banning of certain assault rifles, etc. But we'll also uh, delve into uh, mental illness and, and video games and, and uh, other aspects of the horrific Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting. Back with more of my conversation with Joel Skousen right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. This has been an exclusive podcast of Dave's Corner Garage. Heard every Saturday morning from 10 to 11 on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're back with Joel Skousen, editor and publisher of World Affairs Brief. And again, Joel, how do people subscribe to your news service? They can go to my website, uh, worldaffairsbrief.com, and uh, where it gives a synopsis of the latest brief, and it's a big subscribe button. People can also get a free sample issue before they subscribe to see what the brief is all about. They can email me for that at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Let's uh, let's talk about uh, the Second Amendment and what specifically what what aspects of the Second Amendment these darker forces uh, are are targeting when they orchestrate these these horrible massacres. Well, first of all, let me address the question of why the fetish with trying to destroy the Second Amendment. The United States of America is the only country in the entire world where people have a constitutional right to bear arms. It's a marvelous protection. And not for just hunting, and not for just personal self-defense. The reason the Second Amendment was linked to the militia is because individually born arms are essential to the defense of a nation against government tyranny, starting way back with the Declaration of Independence. When you've exhausted all attempts to win back your rights, you have the right to absolve the government and go to war against it. And that's what the Second Amendment is all about. And government intends, our government is full of globalists, intends to undermine our own individual sovereignty, undermine the Constitution, and get us into a globalized government, a, a new world order, if you will, that is militarized and that will never allow any local individuals to have weapons that can counter that government. Every tyranny in the world has always disarmed its people and with dramatic effects, and that's where we're at it. Even China rejoiced at this shocking tragedy and said, yes, we encourage the United States to disarm the people. They would love to see America disarmed with their plans of eventually 
you know, joining an attack, a nuclear attack on America and then occupying this nation for their own purposes. So the so, it's not enough to get um, um, you know a handgun uh, the handguns out of the out of the way because it's it's those military grade weapons as, as you point out it's the possession of the military grade weapons which are included in the Second Amendment as a defense against not not for purposes of personal safety but for defense against governmental tyranny it's the military grade weapons they've got to get out of the hands of the American public. That is correct. And, of course, they'll, uh, they won't stop at that. They want all weapons, because when you end up going, as they have in Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, uh, the knock on the door at midnight and you get roused out of bed by some KGB or, or Stasi or brown shirt Gestapo, they don't like having individual weapons that can take down their people at the door. So they'll go after all the weapons eventually. Part of that, of course, is that gun registration, and I think that's the window they're going to do. Uh, Dianne Feinstein's bill on gun control says, yes, we're going to grandfather those people who have already purchased assault weapons. By the way, almost a million weapons have been sold since the, this tragedy, knowing that gun control is around the corner. But we're going to require them to be fingerprinted and to register those weapons on a national registry. And that makes them you know, similar to Class Three uh, automatic weapons, where you have to be registered with the ATF and be fingerprinted and uh, and pay a, a fee to maintain that weapon, they're going to make it dis- difficult. In other words, they're going to start by not banning weapons, by simply making it so expensive and difficult that people will give up a lot of those weapons. Uh, they'll probably have some kind of inducement uh, to buy pack weapons. Anything's possible here, but I'll tell you this, at least half of weapon holders in the United States will simply not comply. And until there is legislation uh, before the House, I guess, that, that, uh, that would, or even until it's passed, that would satisfy these globalists, I guess then we need to, to uh, prepare ourselves for more and more of these mass shootings uh, and, and perhaps even more, you know, heinous, as hard as, as that is to imagine. How could anything be more heinous? But perhaps, you know, more victims, younger victims. Uh, uh, is, is that what we're, we're facing, Joel? Yes, it is. As I say, they're not going to stop this killing, these provoked uh, massacres, until they get all the guns. They're just not going to stop. And that's why you'll never see legislation that uh, protects people, really. They, I mean, it's just like we'll never see legislation that really stops uh, you know, border infiltration from illegal aliens, because it's part of a globalist agenda to water down the culture and to water down the vote and to create conflict. It's the same thing. Once you have an agenda that they won't take no for an answer, they won't vote for real defensive measures in schools. In fact, it's, it's interesting that most school teachers are not open to even carrying arms. We've bred a, a weak class of liberals that generally become and soft people because there's no discipline in schools. So we breed a kind of teacher that doesn't believe in discipline, and, uh, and they're just not open to this. There are a few, but generally speaking, the teachers' unions would buck this uh, trend tremendously, but it really needs to be tightened up and concealed weapons in schools. I mean, let's stop these uh, these uh, gun safe zones. I mean, that's uh, really the, you're advertising that here 
you can commit these crimes without any retribution. All right, another time out. We'll be back with Joel Skousen, editor, publisher of World Affairs Brief, right here on The Conspiracy Show as we discuss the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting in Newton, Connecticut. Back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Uh, Joel, aside from uh, talk of you know banning assault rifles and assault weapons and so forth, uh, people are focusing on mental illness, which may be the one thing, the positive thing that comes out of this is I think we, we can all agree that, uh, uh, you know, we don't pay enough attention and not enough resources go into mental illness, although that may not be, you know, really what's at work here with Adam Lanza. Uh, but at least it's got the you know the people talking about uh, you know lack of resources for for the mentally ill. But but do you see something else uh, afoot here? Uh, are they are they trying to uh, increase surveillance on people that are just a little more you know a little different, a little out there? What's what's going on there? Well, first of all, the the protective custody uh, laws about mental illness are very dangerous to liberty. When somebody can have you. Um, you know, put away for good, and that's what the Soviets did. I mean, they just classed a person as mentally ill if they were anti-government, and they said they got uh, excessive paranoia, and they would lock them up for life. We we can't go there. We can't allow, uh, you know, these people to to lock people away on, uh, especially when you have psychologists running around who are under the pay of government who who can start to turn that law and that psychology against legitimate people. One of the reasons why I'm not enthused, uh, Richard, about the ability of the psychiatric profession to come to a conclusion here is that they they reject two of the basic elements that are essential to understanding the psychological and mental uh, issues that people have. And that is, one, the innateness of the individual spirit that inhabits a person. You know, we're not just environmental chemical animals that can be environment induced to do anything. There's an innate spirit inside each person that precedes birth on life that, you know, has its own personality. And any person with multiple children knows that every one of those babies came out of the same mother and the same father and they have absolutely different personalities. And it's very difficult to change what they really are. The second thing besides innateness is the interaction of the human mind with conscience. And conscience is a, a, a receptor in the mind that can perceive spiritual input from either God or Satan or the dark spiritual side. And, you know, when people know what it feels like to have inspiration come to them or being reminded of something they weren't thinking about, and they get a dramatic reminder to go back and do something that they forgot. Those come externally from the mind, and so do temptations, so do rationalizations, all of those things that we understand. Nervous feelings warning us that something's wrong before it happens. Promptings or pushing feelings to do something we don't feel like doing because we should do it. Everybody knows those feelings, and those are external to the mind. What I'm here to tell you from my research is that these psychotropic drugs, these mood-altering drugs, shut down that center. And that's why I have no confidence in the once the psychological surgeon won't discuss conscience, they don't believe in God, they can't discuss it if they do, they don't believe in Satan, they don't believe that Satan can have influence on the mind. So you can't solve what's happening with so much called, uh, you know, whether it's bipolar, which I think really is kind of partial satanic, nobody has two, two personalities. 
they're either being influenced externally or by satanic depression, which causes them to do weird things and then go back into normalcy. But when psychology will not discuss, let alone research, um, you know, the potential of uh, the influences of dark and light spiritual forces on people, they can't come to any solution. So I, I'm not really, uh, you know, optimistic here. What I do want to make a point is that these psychotropic drugs, drugs are shutting down the symbol of uh, center of conscience that, that senses proper promptings and also senses temptation. It alone explains, for example, why people kind of mellow out under these drugs. Because so often their eccentricities and their wildness is occurring because they're getting too much input from Satan doing weird things, and it temporarily goes away. And then when they start to withdraw from these drugs, that's when the huge suicide rate comes in. I have never, Richard, met anyone that I've counseled with about suicide who doesn't have satanic depression, driving them to kill himself, instructing, getting after. They don't want to get better. They don't want to be helped. They don't want any, any help. And this is a driving force within them. And I think when people start to withdraw from these drugs, that center of the mind that hears those satanic things just gets flooded with suicide thoughts. And that's why I think there is a massive uh, research to show that suicide is a result of withdrawal from these drugs. In this, in many respects, then, I guess Adam Lanza was as much a victim, I, I mean, this may not be popular to say, but given this information that you're imparting, Joel, I think it is fair to say Adam Lanza was as much as a victim as the 20 school children and the, and the six teachers that were murdered. Absolutely. I have no doubt in my mind that no rational being, including Adam Lanza, sets out to kill children. No mentally ill person sets out to kill children in that. This was a dedicated plan that someone had planted in his mind through being influenced by a, uh, a psychologist who was under the, the influence of the dark side of government. That's what I'm convinced of. And it's a pattern that we're going to see again and again, and they are victims. It is right now. They are responsible for having started out down this path of antisocial behavior and, uh, and, and violations of conscience whether it's weird hairdos, getting tattoos, and doing weird things. I mean, conscience reminds people, don't do that. It gives them nervous feelings, and, and they go against those, and they get chronic bad judgment. They set themselves up. Just as the FBI is always searching for young, angry Muslims that they can get a hold of and induce to create domestic terrorist acts, I'll say it plainly, virtually everyone has been prosecuted by government has been induced and provided the plans, the weapons, and everything else to carry forth. And none of them would have done it had the FBI agent provocateurs not been there. And I'm convinced that none of these mass shootings would occur if it weren't for agent provocateurs and government-paid psychiatrists working on these people and hypnotizing them into these acts. Uh, back to the gun control um, uh, ban. A number of news organizations, I believe one of them was Reuters, was actively encouraging uh, President Obama to go it alone, uh, to use executive orders to to put some sort of uh, assault rifle ban in place. Um, I mean, they're begging him practically to be, you know, the new Caesar. Well, they are, and. Uh it's really not legal to do that, but uh, the Congress has been absolutely 
behind the eight ball in terms of restricting the president's use of these improper executive orders. You can't make law with executive orders. You can only give orders to the executive department about implementing law, and it has to be within the law. You can't counterman it. So the DREAM Act about saying don't enforce the INS was counter to law. It was legal executive order. But Congress is not going apparently not going to use their impeachment power to stop this. But Obama has already said that he's uh, planning and has plans to use executive orders to class all assault weapons as class three weapons, requiring permits and registration and paying a fine. Just by de- by classing them into class three puts them into a banned status except by permission of government. And I think that's a very real thing. If they can't get something passed with the Feinstein bill, you'll see that happen. What's happened in England uh, since their gun ban uh, that was sort of um, in, inspired, I guess, in, in, in the wake of the Dunblane shooting in 1996? What's happened to, to crime uh, and violence in Great Britain since 96? Well, that's very interesting because crime with handguns has skyrocketed. And it's proof positive that banning civilian uh, civilians, law-abiding citizens from having handguns does not stop crime. Uh, criminals can always get the, uh, their hands on these weapons. You know, the bobbies in England used to be completely unarmed. Now they're armed to the teeth. They have to be armed because uh, the criminals have arms. So gun ban does absolutely nothing to stop that. Now, people point out to the fact that we have the highest you know, murder rate in, in, in the world, but we've got to remember that that is only upon areas like New York City and Chicago that drive the statistics up that have gun bans. When you have areas where concealed weapons permits are abundant and people are armed, you have an, an incredibly low murder and assault rate. And so uh, gun control doesn't work, but gun permits among the citizens does provide a powerful alternative and a, a disincentive to use guns in public. Uh, and, and one final note, Joel, and this is uh, this is absolutely bizarre, uh, but, the, you know, the Internet uh, is just buzzing about this one. And that is, of course, uh, coincidentally, the uh, the Dark Knight Rises, which was the movie playing in Aurora, uh, Colorado, when uh, uh, when when Holmes supposedly uh, went on his uh, rampage in that movie, there is a mention uh, of Sandy Hook uh, as I believe Commissioner Gordon uh, or someone pointing to a map of Gotham City, and there on the map we see the words Sandy Hook, almost prophetic. W- what do you make of that? Well, it's it's true. Uh, and in fact, it was changed from an earlier version to Sandy Hook. Um, and um, so we look at it, you know, let's see, the original one was South Hinckley on the map. And then in the latest version, it was changed to Sandy Hook. Uh, you know, it's a lot of people have made a lot out of this. I'm not sure that it's definitive. Uh, but, uh, you know, the dark side of government does have and kind of delight in giving little hints about where they're going with these things, uh, just to see if anybody picks up on them. The fact that it was changed from South Hinkley to Sandy Hook is very, very interesting. And the fact that in Manhattan, there is no Sandy Hook in that area, that was that was completely changed. Um, in addition, um, there is the next target on that list in the Batman movie was Fort Clinton, and uh, up there on with the number two marked on it, and that happens to be right next door to to West Point. And so a lot of people have said, including I 
mentioned it in the brief, that in fact there's a false flag or massacre or an attack on the, the cadets at uh, West Point. We'll certainly be looking at the dark night for foreknowledge of these types of things. So if, if God forfend, there was a shooting um, uh, targeting West Point, what better way to get the military on side for an, uh, an absolute you know, ban on assault weapons? That's right, yes. And, uh, you know, everything is very much, uh, you know, disarmed there at West Point. Uh, uh, you know, they have uh, show rifles and everything, but there really isn't any protection there. So it's one of those, uh, uh, you know, open uh, cases, that open opportunities for one of these types of things. So I'm not making any uh, definitive prognosis based upon the Dark Knight Rises, uh, whether it's coincidence or whether or not it's, it's foreknowledge, but uh, it, it does observe... It is worth looking into in terms of future things. Well, Joel, listen, I, I appreciate you taking time to come on and talk about this uh, horrific event. Uh, and it's not um, it's not easy to listen to. It's not easy to talk about, you know, governments targeting their own people or, or we should say darker elements within the government targeting their own people in such a uh, evil way. Um, nevertheless, we need to get that out there, and, and um, uh, people will, will, you know, have to to wake up and 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 start paying closer to it, attention to these these things, and dig a little deeper, and not just go along with, uh, you know, what the mainstream media tells them. So, appreciate your time, Joel. My pleasure, Richard. Good to be with you. All right. Bye bye. Joel Skousen, editor publisher of World Affairs Brief. Say hello on Twitter, twitter.com slash Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T, and of course, the website, www.richardserrett.com. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Happy New Year to all of you uh, listening to the show. On Zuma Radio, AM740 out of Toronto, uh, the GTA across Ontario and parts of Quebec down to the Carolinas, Maine to Minnesota. All of you listening on one of our great affiliate stations and uh, around the world listening uh, online, live online at zoomerradio.ca and richardsarah.com and of course those of you listening uh, to the podcast. So, we all survived the end of the world, December 21, 2012, and, and welcome to the 14th Bactoon. I'm guessing there are a lot of Mayans out there who are still writing Bactoon 13 on their checkbooks. Uh, so much anxiety and, and, and stress surrounding the, uh, the supposed ending of the Mayan long count calendar on December 21, 2012. Uh, but I knew the whole time why the Mayans ended the calendar then. You see, they simply decided to replace the long count calendar with the 2013 Dilbert desk calendar. So there you go. So we start a brand new year, but we left a lot of people behind in 2012. Uh, We're still all uh, in a state of shock over the horrible shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Many of us lost loved ones of our own. And it's strange, so often they tend to leave us around the holidays, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. But even in death, there is hope. That's the message of this hour, really. My guest is a therapist, an author, and lecturer specializing in grief and dying. And she's about to present some pretty compelling evidence that there is life after death. Carla Wills Brandon has, over the course of three decades, researched nearly 2,000 occurrences when, at the moment of physical death, the dying were visited by departed loved ones 
who returned to help them to make the transition from this life to the next. In her new book, Heavenly Hugs, Comfort, Support, and Hope from the Afterlife, Brandon presents a riveting collection of real-life stories of departing visions and visitations from the deceased. Hey, Carla, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. I'm in a really good place. No storms. You caught me at a great time. Uh, terrific. You know, uh, the holiday season, Christmas, on, on into New Year's, uh, people, we tend to lose a lot of uh, loved ones during uh, Christmas and, and uh, through throughout the holidays. Why is that? What is it about this time of year that people just seem to let go? Well, interestingly... I have had personally so many losses. I can't remember when I've had this many losses, and I'm 56 years old, so I've been around for a while. But I had two patients suicide. I had a friend suicide. I had a cousin overdose. I had another cousin die from cancer. I had another friend die from um, lung cancer, and the list can continue. And there are several things that happen here. Number one, as a clinician, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I deal with trauma, I mean severe trauma. Um, Oftentimes what happens is that there are those individuals who, uh, the two clients who committed suicide, both of them had history in their background that really, 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 they just couldn't work through it, and life on the other side seemed to be a really good option for them. Uh, the friend who committed suicide, he actually hung himself. His, his suicide was more about anger, the holidays coming up, um, expectations not being met. It was a, it, that was so, so sad. Whereas my friend Jesse, who passed, he basically, um, he knew that his passing was coming. He had lung cancer. He made some decisions about taking hold of his own um, trip to the other side, and he passed at home with family and friends at his bedside. Um, and then there are those individuals where it's almost an unconscious process where, and we see that a lot. Any of your listeners who, uh, right before the holidays, if they start opening up the obituary section of the newspaper, all of a sudden it just seems like, wow, why are all of these people passing? Um, there's also this unconscious process to, uh, some people what they'll do is they'll hang on and, uh, pass after the holidays. And then there are those individuals who don't want to be a burden to their families. And so what they do is, and this happens a lot with the elderly, they will, it's like almost like unconscious process, and they will pass before the holidays. So I really do believe that there is so much about death and dying that we don't understand. Uh, So many in our society are so incredibly, we have such a death-phobic society. And so what we see when we see all of these losses before and after the holidays, a lot of us, I know some individuals who they will not look at the obituary section for that very reason. Uh, Some individuals, um, they won't go to funerals. Others become superstitious. We have some very unusual behaviors when it comes to death and dying. Uh, That's for sure. Uh, And it's, yeah, it's... (laughs) 
you know, people are gathered around the table and they and they're talking about someone who's sick. They they won't actually say the disease or what's going on out loud. They'll whisper it like, "Aunt Sophie's got cancer." That kind of thing. It's hush hush. Um, uh, Carla Wills Brandon is with us, the author of Heavenly Hugs, her brand new one, Comfort, Support, and Hope from uh, the Afterlife. And uh, you've you worked with with people that have been impacted by some horrible events. Uh, I know you know the, the Challenger space shuttle and and the World Trade Center bombing and and even Holocaust survivors, and of course, we just finished talking about this unimaginably horrific uh, shooting at uh, Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, I, I don't know if you've if you've um, reached out to any of the the families of the victims, or whether they've reached out to you. Or, but what do you say to someone like that who's lost a five or a six year old? To be honest with you, each situation is different. Some people will want words of comfort. It, it really is about, it has to do with how we have handled deaths in our own life. So with some individuals, it's been my job to reach out and just a hug or um, holding a hand. Other individuals, they want to hibernate for a while. I'll never forget uh, one of the women that I worked with who was impacted by the Challenger explosion. Uh, She really was, she talked about being so numb for the first couple of years and how she just, you know, she had things she had to do and and she wasn't real hooked into anybody or anything, but um, she was on automatic pilot taking care of business. And people thought that she was doing so well when in reality she was on survival mode and that's where she really needed to be. Year three, she crashed crashed and cratered. Same thing for um, individuals who lost loved ones during the 9-11 tragedy uh, and some of the other horrible, awful things that have happened in our country and in different countries. Um, Even Holocaust survivors, boy, I have worked with Holocaust survivors who they have just been on automatic pilot for decades, and that's where they need to be. For some strange and bizarre reason, our culture thinks that after the funeral, wow, if you are looking good and smiling and shaking everybody's hand, well, you must be over it. Uh, and that's just not the case. It doesn't work that way. Then if somebody is, if they hibernate and lock themselves away and they just want to be alone, well, all of a sudden people think they're, they're not something, they need to get out more. Um, if a widower has lost a partner and they decide that they really, they're just not into getting hooked up anytime soon, but all of a sudden their family wants them to come out for holidays and wants them to meet, oh, we have this cute neighbor down the, down the road that we want you to meet, um, and they're saying, no, 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 I just need to hibernate. What happens is that everybody, they they personalize this. So we don't allow people to just be where they need to be. So with these parents who have had these horrific losses, and, and both my husband and I have worked with parents who have lost children, each situation is very, very different. Some people will jump into that automatic pilot deal, and they will just go and blow, and they will keep themselves very occupied, very busy, and that works for them, and then they'll crash. And my job is just to be available for them when they do crash. And to let them know that that's, there's nothing, that's okay. This is their way. Others will need to hibernate, and they won't want 
want to talk to anybody. Then there will be those who will be angry. They won't even be able to cry because they will be so angry. They will be angry at concepts of God, higher power, religious institutions. And so if a minister, priest, or rabbi tries to step into their house, watch out. Then um, there will, of course, be some who will turn to medications. Um, Then there will be those who turn to um, alcohol or lack of food, too much food. Some will have what's called sundown syndrome where they get their days and their nights mixed up where they sleep all day and they stay up all night. And the bottom line is when somebody shows up on my doorstep, my job is to first of all just listen. I'm not supposed to tell them how, how, that I know how they feel because I don't know how they feel. And if anything, that is what I say, unless I have had their exact experience. So I lost my mother when I was 16. So if somebody were to show up in my office and they had lost a mother at a very early age, then I would say, you know, I might know how you feel. Uh, if I happen to have lost my spouse and somebody who had lost their spouse showed up in my office, then I might be able to say, I might know how you feel. But with these parents who lost these, it seems like such an injustice. So you will have some who will also turn to faith. They will turn to their religion, and that will work really well for them. Um, One widower I know right now, that's what's keeping him afloat is um, faith. And um, when I talk with him, uh, I have to be real cautious because that is his faith. It's not my job to tell him how he needs to have a faith, a life, <laughs> a no. religious life. I need to keep my mouth shut. All right, listen. And a we, lot of people. Well, uh, we're oh, going to take a time out here. Sorry, uh, Carla. When we come back, we'll talk about how this this hope and support from the hereafter comes in the form of evidence that life does not end at death. And we'll get into that with Carla Wills Brandon, the author of Heavenly Hugs, Comfort and Support, sorry, Comfort, Support and Hope from the Afterlife, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Heavenly hugs, comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife. Carla Wills Brandon, PhD, is with us. Uh, 2,000 cases you've researched over the years, departing visions and visitations from deceased relatives and friends. How, how and where and when did you get started? Well, as I mentioned earlier, my mom passed away when I was really young. And at the moment of her passing, I woke up the exact moment. And I had just turned 16. And I got up out of bed, and I went downstairs, and uh, she was in the hospital, and I waited for the phone call informing me that she had passed on. And it came within a matter of minutes, and then I proceeded. I was one of those who became very numb. Um, I took my first drink alcoholically (laughs) of alcohol that very day and stuffed all of my grief because in my family nobody was talking about loss nobody had talked about her illness and thank goodness for alcoholism (laughs) i've been sober now for 28 years so that's that but that at that point that's what kept me sane now at that exact 
same moment in a different part of the city that I was in, two other people in separate locations also woke up at the moment of her passing, and they too knew that she had moved on. They talked to each other, but they didn't really talk to me because they thought that they would be upsetting me. I didn't find out about their experiences until 20 years later. And just this year, I found out that my great aunt and my cousin also woke up at the exact moment of her passing. So there were five of us who woke up. Now, when I finally got my own act together (laughs) a few years later and um, had finished graduate school and had uh, started working as a clinician, um, I I was working specifically with trauma. And so uh, I would lecture around the United States, and I happened to be in the U.K., and I found myself in one of those old musty bookstores where the stairs go underneath the ground and you can hardly breathe. And, <laughs> and I found this book written by a guy named Sir William Barrett, who was a physicist. He and his wife, who was a gynecological surgeon, had collected accounts called Departing Visions. And when I started reading through them, I thought, wow, this is really interesting. So those at the bedside of someone who's dying or those who know somebody who is dying can have some of these unusual experiences. Now, also during the same time, because I was working with trauma, of course, I was working with death. So I had begun to hear accounts um, from the dying people who were getting ready to pass, uh, having uh, visitations from deceased relatives or visions of angels who had come to take them to the afterlife. And these experiences were always the same. It was always a deceased relative or loved one in these awake visitations or dreams, because they could come in dreams too. And if an individual felt fearful of death or dying, once they had one of these experiences, it was comforting. Now, as a clinician, I've also worked with people who have had some real bona fide hallucinations. And if I were to have 10 people come into my office in one day, all of them suffering from hallucinations, each one would have a different hallucination. With a departing vision, what I began to notice was that wow, there seems to be some real consistency here that with these individuals, it's deceased loved ones or relatives who have come uh, to escort them to an afterlife. Also, the dying would report uh, leaving their bodies like a near-death experience. Uh, Some of them would report going through a tunnel, uh, going to an afterlife, and having... Uh, alternative dimension experiences and then what they would do is they would come back because they weren't quite ready to go and they would try to share these experiences with doctors and nurses but of course sadly and unfortunately doctors and nurses typically would not want to hear about these and so they would try to share these experiences with their family members If family members were open, it was great because then that broke the taboo of we can't talk about the fact that you're getting ready to pass because you have cancer and there's nothing more we can do about it. And let's tie up unfinished business. A hundred years ago, 150 years ago, when somebody was getting ready to pass, they died at home in their own bed with their own pets, with family around the bed, and 
if they had a departing vision, what they would do is they would share this with those at the bedside, and because death was part of the landscape, children would be at the bedside too, and people would ask questions. Did you see grandpa? Did you see mom? Did you see my wife? Did you see my brother? So during those times, there was this belief that when we were getting ready to pass, we had one foot in this world and one in the next. So it was very, very different. But with materialistic, traditional science, what has happened is that these experiences have been pushed to the side because most people tend to pass in nursing homes or they pass in hospitals. Also, they pass medicated, over-medicated, as opposed to pain management for pain, which happens when people do suffer certain illnesses. So in looking at all of this, I thought to myself, holy cow, you know, this is really interesting stuff. So then I came across this book called um, At the Hour of Death, and it was written by Erlinger Haraldson and Carlos Osis, these two psychologists from Iceland. And as a matter of fact, I am in touch with Dr. Haraldson. He's a kick. He really is. He's 85, I don't know, early 80s, and he's now moved from investigating departing visions to looking at reincarnation with children. But they did a huge longitudinal study. What they did is they took a look at Sir William Barrett's work, and they put together a questionnaire. And they took this questionnaire to thousands upon thousands of healthcare workers, uh, doctors and nurses, not only in the United States, but in India. So they did a cross-cultural study investigating what happens, what do you see, what goes on with your patients when you are watching your patients pass, die. And what they found were more very interesting concepts. Same thing, Uh, it wasn't like a traditional hallucination. Uh, The visions always involved deceased relatives, friends, angels, some religious icons. Um, If a patient was combative before, after having one of these experiences, they calmed down and they had no fear of death. Um, It didn't matter if a person was religious or agnostic. Uh, it didn't matter if a person um, had was part of the New Age, had heard about the New Age movement. Back then they called it Eastern uh, uh, oh, philosophies. They didn't call it New Age. Or if they were uh, just sort of your average Joe. Um, medication didn't matter. Uh, type of illness the individual was passing from didn't matter. Uh, Oxygen deprivation was ruled out. So what they did is they did this huge, huge study. And since then, there have been a number of other studies in Holland and Ireland and um, uh, parts of, uh, oh, my goodness sakes, I was just looking at one from Italy. Even the VA, the Veterans Administration, a branch of the Veterans Administration in California, have done studies on the the uh, deathbed vision, and they've all basically found the same thing. Unfortunately, 
it's still a closeted discussion. It's still a closeted topic. I think it's one of those uh, things that nurses or, or emergency room personnel will talk to you off the record, but probably don't want to be quoted. Oh, they definitely don't want to be quoted. I'm actually in the process of writing um, an article for White Crow because I've, this is my third book on The Departing Vision, and um, I have a re-release of another book called A Glimpse of Heaven with a publisher out of the U.K., and so I'm putting together an article on medical caregivers and their reactions to The Departing Vision. And so you have a majority who will just kind of poo-poo it. Uh, right down the street from where I live, believe it or not, on this, on this island that I live on, there is a major medical school. And uh, trying to set up to replicate uh, Haraldson and Osis' uh, study, I didn't get anywhere. Nobody, they were not interested whatsoever. Um, because they're just, they, it's still seen as there, there's not this understanding that consciousness is not a byproduct of the brain. Consciousness is non-local. Quantum physics is showing us that. And what quantum physics is saying is that consciousness is outside of our physicality, but that it is influenced by our physicality. So if you want to, kind of how I look at it is <laughs> we, have, we have DNA and genetics and, and we have our physical bodies and, and we have consciousness which squeezes into this physical body and then is impacted by our genetics and who and our physicality it's not the other way around but unfortunately a lot of the medical community continues to to believe that uh, consciousness is a byproduct of the brain and that once we die and brain function ceases well consciousness is gone well, based on near-death studies, uh, those individuals who die and come back to life, uh, what we're seeing is that individuals have, they are flatlined. There is no, <laughs> there is absolutely no, doing a brain scan, there is no, no activity, zip, zero, nada, <laughs> going on there. So, um, but unfortunately, you have these materialistic individuals who, they just fight it tooth and nail comfort zone, uh, fear, um, really having to take a look at how we're thinking and dealing with things like palliative care, end-of-life care. Right, All right. of that comes into play. All right, listen, when, so, we, uh, when we come back, I want to talk about what some, some of these uh, care workers or family members have reported seeing at the moment of death uh, when a loved one passes, uh, things that they've seen uh, emanating from the body, apparently. Let's let's talk about that, and and then historically, what what people who have been on death's doorstep have have reported. Uh, people like you know the great composers and uh, and even one of the popes uh, will do all of that with Carl's will, uh, Carla Wills Brandon, author of Heavenly Hugs, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We are back with Carla Wills Brandon, the author of Heavenly Hugs. And um, uh, we're talking about uh, evidence that life does not end with uh, death. Now, 
I'm not sure if it was part of uh, this this wide-ranging study or this is uh, something that you've sort of gleaned from your years of research, but but there has been something seen repeatedly leaving the body at the moment of death. What can you tell me about that, Carla? Well, I included an entire chapter on this in the latest book, and what I'm thinking about doing is doing an entire book on it next. Um, I'm not the first person to notice this. Uh, anybody who has done any investigating into the departing vision has come has knocked up against this. Raymond Moody, the famous near-death experience researcher who recently did a book that included departing visions, he found this. Kubler-Ross's uh, uh, protege, I can't remember his name, um, he also uh, really took a look at this. Um, what? Let me just give you a brief example. My husband is a licensed clinical psychologist. He's as meat and potatoes as you can get. <laughs> he's, he's, he was a materialistically, uh, scientifically minded, uh, oriented individual who came from a family of Holocaust survivors. His, his father was actually uh, a bigger-than-life individual who uh, went back and rounded up all the family in concentration camps and brought them back to the States. And after seeing what he saw, he, he considered himself to be an atheist. So it was a when-you-die-you-eat-worms you sort of deal there. But when my father-in-law was passing, um, my husband sat with him. And as his passing uh, got, became near, uh, within a day or so, my husband saw something leaving uh, his father's body. And it was a vaporous, cloud-like, uh, multicolored um, something. And he came rushing home. And, and you have to remember, this is my husband, the meat and potatoes man. I had already written my first book on The Departing Vision. And he he was just beside himself. He couldn't believe it. He said, I saw something leaving Pop's body. Uh, shortly before this, a cousin of ours who was very religious with regard to her religion, uh, nobody would call her a New Age person, uh, very a, a school teacher, she also saw a vaporous a vapor leave her mother's body at the mo at the exact moment of passing. And so over the years, I had collected a number of accounts uh, from individuals who had witnessed this. And uh, William Barrett, he had accounts of this nature, as did some of the other earlier uh, investigators. And there were a bunch of these early investigators, uh, late 1700s, 1800s, um, who reported these things because, as I said, back during those days, it was common for family and friends to be at the bedside of someone who was dying. So they, it has been described as a cloud, a luminous cloud, a vapor, a light. Um, so some accounts have reported even seeing uh, a duplicate of the individual who has who is in the process of passing um, but uh, it's it's uh, there it's like how do I explain it I can't even find words but it's, it's like a duplicate but it's more of a vaporous 
form, if that makes any sense. Right, like a silhouette of that person, a silhouette um, of that person, or... A silhouette, that's a good word. Um, Also, individuals have reported waking up uh, at the moment of a passing before they know there's a passing, and at the foot of the bed, they have seen a vaporous uh, orb-like something, and they have known intuitively that it's their their loved one, and then they receive a phone call, uh, and they're in, they have, they're being told that their loved one has just passed. Or they see, as you described, a silhouette. Or they see, um, in full body form, a loved one. One of the accounts that I included in this latest book involved a man who... He was sitting at his breakfast table, and all of a sudden he saw his mother or grandmother, I can't remember which, knocking on the window, and he thought she had just come by for a visit. And then he received information that, no, at the moment that he had seen her, she was passing away at her house. So um, I think the most fascinating, though, is the report of seeing something leave the body, because that's just that's really really hard to dismiss. Now I, I'm not minimizing these other experiences at all, but it is hard to dismiss sitting there at the bedside of someone who is getting ready to pass, and seeing something grayish, bluish, uh, whitish uh, just leave the chest area or the head area. So as I said, it's something I really want to investigate it some more. Um, I, I, I may even have two chapters in this latest book. I don't remember. <laughs> is there, has anyone but, taken a photograph of this, whatever this is, the essence of that person leaving their body? There's a guy in Russia. He's a Russian physicist, and he's been around for a while, and he wrote a book called Light After Light. And he he does photograph with Curlinger photography. Um, he photographs the soul leaving the body. And this is something that he's been involved with. Good grief, I've been doing this for quite a while, so he's been doing it for at least 25 years. And I know that he also now has moved on to using this uh, for looking at certain types of illnesses in the body and uh, has developed techniques for uh, photographing and then treating illness. But what he discovered was that when he would do these photographs that there was a difference between somebody who died slowly and somebody who passed suddenly and he of course he took into account things like because he was also doing uh, measurements with weight he took into account things like uh, vapor natural vapor moisture leaving the body at the moment of death and uh, he took into uh, account when photographing uh, the soul leaving the body, he took a look at um, normal, natural breath that would be leaving, uh, perspiration that would be leaving. So, yeah, there are some people out there, we're not going to hear about them in the mainstream media, of course, who really are taking a look at this. And the majority of them are doing this, if they're not with a university, they're like me and they're doing it on their own dime. And they're often receiving ridicule from traditional mainstream mainstream folk, but we're very committed to investing. I think it's a, it's something we really need to take a look at if we can. Oh, for sure. Learn. I mean, you're doing the you know the old expression. You're doing the Lord's work, Carla, because the best comfort for someone who's grieving is to know 
that their loved one isn't gone. We'll uh, pick it up on the other side. Heavenly hugs, comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife with Carla Wills Brandon right here on The Conspiracy Show. You stay with us. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. We're back with Carla Wills Brandon. Comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife. Heavenly Hugs is the name of her, her new book. Now, when someone is ready, when they've gone through, well, they're still in the midst of grieving, but when do you find it a good time to impart this information to that person who's grieving, to let them know, listen, there's lots of evidence out there that, that your son or your daughter or your husband, your mother, they're still with us. Yeah. As I said before, everybody is really different, um, and it's like walking on eggshells. So I may get somebody who comes in who, okay, so for example, there was the individual who was dying of lung cancer. I, his wife had passed away before him, and this was before he, this was before he um, announced that he was sick or even knew that he was sick. I knew that he was ready to read. I sent him have, uh, One Last Hug Before I Go, which was my first book, because there, I just had a sense that he was in a place where that would be very comforting for him. Then when he was, on his, when he was getting ready to pass himself, there was a wonderful uh, article that was put out, a newspaper article, and I, it was out of Pennsylvania. And it involved a man and a woman who died within relatively a short period of time with with each other. And uh, as one after one passed, and the second was getting ready to pass, uh, the second began reporting seeing their spouse. And uh, the words were, "Pull me up, pull me up, take me with you." It was just a wonderful article. And so I sent that to him. So that was that situation. Um, with this most recent widower, I won't be sharing any information with him because he is just not there right now. I could just feel it. Um, and it's a sense. So in working with people who have had losses like this, it's really important to respect where they are because there is no right or wrong. So the individual who's not ready to have this information, um, that's his journey. That's his spiritual journey. That's his process. And for me to push on him information, that's me. I would be disrespecting his journey. Whereas the other widower who was so ready, it was my obligation to get the information to him as soon as I Good. So I think that for your listeners out there, if I, if I can say anything about dealing with the grieving, uh, whether it's a friend or a relative, tiptoe around the tulips. Try to see where it is they're at. Uh, they will let you know real quickly if they want information like this or not. Nothing is more difficult for certain grieving. As I said before, there are those grieving who are, they really, they want faith-based information. And then there are others who are so angry that the mere discussion of it will send them into a rage. And they need that rage at that point in time because that rage is keeping them going. So it's about having some awareness. This may be unanswerable. It probably is, but uh, I'll throw it out there anyway. And that is, why don't most of us receive 
um, some sort of a, a departing uh, a vision from a loved one or, or, or after they've gone, why don't we get some sort of a, a, you know, a communication with them? Why is it just a select few? You know, people used to ask me that question, and I would not have an answer for that. And now I have my own Carla-ism. <laughs> uh, years ago, I went and I did some work with Raymond Moody, and um, it was with a psychomantium, which is an old mirror-gazing technique. And, and centuries ago, what people used to do is they would gaze into a bowl of water or uh, at a mirror or, or some sort of reflect reflection and... And what would happen is they would have visitations from deceased loved ones after death communications. And so I became friendly with Dr. Moody, and uh, several of us went to his place in Alabama, and we hung out, and he had psychomantiums built into his house. <laughs> this is a dedicated researcher. And Diane Sawyer even went and did an interview with him for 2020 uh, about his psychomantiums. And, and I was a real skeptic, a total skeptic. And I thought, well, I'll give it a whirl. So he had four of them in his house. And so the first couple that I went into, I sat and I cried and I was upset because my grandmother had just died and she had filled the shoes of my mother and was so important to me. And, and, um, and then we had dinner, and I, ha I had no desire to participate anymore. I was going to go catch a nap, and, and something nudged me to go into the last psychomantium that I hadn't tried, and I went and I sat down, and, and I was just relaxing, and um, all of a sudden, uh, it got very cold. The temperature dropped, and I, I just kept saying to myself, what can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? And suddenly, these orb-like vectors uh, emerged, vapor, cloud, from uh, the mirror that I was looking at. Now, the room was completely dark. It's a very small room, um, and there's just a mirror, and that's it, and a chair. Now, I could hear Raymond in the other room. He was talking about he was upset about his gardening or something. I can't remember. But I just sat there, and I, and I actually got a little freaked out because then the orbs started to make physical contact with me. And um, one of the facilitators walked by, and she came in, and she asked me if I was all right, and I told her what was happening, and she said, do you want to quit? And I said, no, I think I need to continue. And so I did. I continued with this, and I had one orb go through me in my heart area. Wow. And it was the most amazing experience of love. I can't even... I couldn't talk about it for four years. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't tell anybody about it. I was. It. It. It really. It did me in. Um, I knew intuitively that every single one of my relatives and my deceased loved ones were there. I knew it. And so, um, as I said afterwards, it took me some time to process it, and then I finally included it in uh, this recent book and the last book. But my point being that. For years, I did not, after the one experience with my mother, I, I didn't feel anything from her. I, had, uh, I didn't have any contact with anybody, my grandparents who passed away, nobody. And so now I have different ideas about that. And some of those ideas have to do with where I was on this side and where they were on that side on, in the afterlife. 
where I was on this side in my journey, where they were uh, in their, we, we take ourselves to the other side and we continue to grow. And I'm a firm believer in that. Um, and so I don't, I think that just because someone doesn't have an experience, uh, they may be having experiences in their dreams and they may not be remembering them. That's another thing I want to throw out there. So I think it's kind of like if you look at it like this, I have relatives who live in different parts of the country and I have relatives who live in Israel and the UK and in, in Germany. And sometimes I don't hear from them. I, I just don't hear from them. Um, some of them I haven't heard from in years. Uh, I don't know what's going on with them. I don't know what it is they're up to or what they're doing. So if, if your listeners can just look at it as a situation where life continues, um, our journey continues, our growth continues, and that for whatever reason, we may not be receiving the visitations we think we should be receiving, or we may not be receiving the visitations from the from those specific individuals we think we should be receiving and uh, uh, we should be having encounters with. Um, so I think it's there's a lot more to it. It's not quite so simple as well. Am I just not that psychic, or I'm not trying hard enough, or uh, what is the deal here? So. The, the simplest thing to do, and I even had someone tell me to do this again when I was very upset about uh, the clients and the friend who committed suicide. Uh, even authors like me who research this stuff have to be reminded. Get a pen and get a piece of paper and have it by the bedside. And before you go to bed, visualize your deceased loved ones in your mind's eye and ask them to come visit you in a dream. And then upon awakening, write down how you feel or write down um, any uh, dreams you have. So that's the easiest way to address that. That's uh, interesting, just a final note, because I, you know, I, I've never considered myself to be the least bit uh, psychic or intuitive, far from it, uh, even though I talk about this stuff constantly. I'm just not that person. And yet, as, you, as you're saying this, I constantly have dreams about uh, departed relatives. and But it, there's nothing exceptional about the dream. It's just like we're continuing on. There's Uncle Bob sitting across the table and my dad, both gone, and they're, we're just eating supper. And there's nothing remarkable about what's being said. It's just really kind of banal, you know, past the ketchup. So is that, <laughs> is that, uh, is that spirit communication? Yeah, that's them. Look, dreams are very interesting. Uh, I've used dreams in trauma work in order to work through trauma. Uh, so we have stress dreams, which are very symbolic. And so like after my mother passed, um, I would have these dreams about being lost in the cemetery and I couldn't find her. Well, that's a kind of a trauma stress dream. It was in black and white. There was nothing. It was, it was more about me working out my stress. Or if I'm mad at somebody, I'll have some sort of symbolic dream about them. And, um, and then the trauma dreams, we can have memories of trauma in our dreams that can come up or we can have symbolic experiences that are related to our trauma. But when we have, when we can cross through that, that doorway to the other side in our dreams, what we're going to see, see what, one of the things that Barrett discovered in working with uh, the parting visions is that when children reported uh, seeing angels, the angels didn't have wings. 
When people report near-death experiences and they encounter the light or God, they rep- they, what they mostly report is just this big being of energy. So it's, and it's, a lot of people when they report after-death communication dreams, it's like Bob and Dad eating meatloaf and pass the ketchup, please. Yes. <laughs> and they just kind of look at you, and basically the message is, hey, we're okay, you know, just, uh, just want to let you know we're doing fine. It's reassurance. It's a way to reassure us, to let us know that uh, life does continue and everything is just, and we're here, and, and we're, we haven't gone away, and, uh, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, indeed, it's it's comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife, and and uh, a, a great time of year to impart this as we uh, uh, venture forth into 2013 and think back on all those that we left behind, knowing that they're still out there enjoying their meatloaf, as it were. Uh, That's Car- right. <laughs> Carla, thank you so much for this, and happy New Year. Well, thank you so much. Heavenly hugs, comfort, support, and hope from the afterlife. Hey, thanks for listening. That's it for me. A special thanks to Dan Ellison. My old technical producer has come back, sitting in for Tim Spreen, my uh, my new producer who's um, vacationing in Japan right now. Dan, great to have you back, and thank you. Uh, next week on the program, The Paranormal Equation, a new scientific perspective on remote viewing, clairvoyance, and other inexplicable phenomena, James D. Stein. PhD. You remember him from uh, How Math Explains the World. He'll be on the program next week. Hope you'll be along for that. Say hello on Twitter. Twitter.com slash Richard Serrett. S-Y-R-E-T-T. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.